0: Is for a crowd? Could Sunday night's surprise announcement mean the return of a fully-fledged TARDIS team? Or is Chris Chibnall up to something more tricksy? Plus, the Christmas master plan marches on. It's time to discuss The End of Time and A Christmas Carol with Reality Bomb's Graham Burke on the October 24th edition of This Week in Time Travel.
1: Team Tardis, team Tardis, team Tardis, team.
0: Okay, well, I okay, I guess you just spoiled our news discussion about this. Uh, Tardis she's team. She's in favor. Okay, she's in favor. We'll go on to the Christmas episodes recap. Okay, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I want to start this podcast right off the bat by announcing that another podcast is dead to me. Oh, chip. I, I was super excited. That we were going to, be, because we record on Sundays, we release on Tuesdays, Radio Free Scarrow releases on Sundays, but they released before the news came out about the casting announcement, of which everybody's all abuzz, uh, the team that's going to be joining Jodie Whitaker on Doctor Who next year, and I thought we were going to be out the gate talking about it first, and they went and did a special episode. Shapansky dead. Fry, Dead. Burgess, double dead. Men are such babies. What?
1: <laughs> and so we got fantastic news that we have the new companions for Jodie Whitaker's Doctor. Starting off Are
0: they all companions now? What? Are they all companions um, now?
1: I think so. I think they're all companions. It's the, the whole team of companions.
0: Was the Brigadier a companion, Alyssa Frankie? Yes,
1: and I will fight people on this.
0: Oh, God, this podcast is over.
1: <laughs> so we start off with the long-rumored companion, Bradley Walsh, as Graham. Uh, whoever got that news, first off, could not hold out until the uh, the announcement because that's been floating around for months now.
0: That's Graham, not Graham. That's an important difference that will become relevant later on. Um, Because we're going to be talking about Christmas episodes with Graham Burke. But Graham is not a companion, that's Grey-hum. Bradley Walsh, game show host, an evil clown on the Sarah Jane adventures. He was also on Coronation Street in Law & Order UK. Uh, Some have called it stunt casting. Uh, There was some side eye delivered toward him uh, back when the rumors started coming out an older white guy alongside Jodie Whittaker, was that really necessary and all of that? But wait, there's more.
1: There is. We also have Mandip Gill as Yasmin. Um, she's previously appeared on uh, Hollyoaks. We also have Tosin Cole, who also appeared on Hollyoaks, EastEnders, and had a brief role as an X-Wing pilot in The Force Awakens, so any rebel pilot is good with me.
0: They also... Announced that Sharon D. Clark will be in a returning role of some sort, but Chris Chibnall really did separate her from the other three, basically indicating that the other three are more significant. We can call them regulars or uh, or possibly even a literal TARDIS team. We just don't know which of them are going to be regularly zooming across the universe in the TARDIS There could be something else going on.
1: There could, but it is a really incredible TARDIS team that is set up. You do have the older white man. You also have the white woman, but you have two companions of color, a man and a woman, depending on how they develop the roles of the companions. And knowing Chris Chibnall, I'd say it's likely that one of their characters is represented as some flavor of queer on screen. So I have my fingers crossed that that actually happens. But it's a really unique, diverse TARDIS team. The TARDIS is not going to be overwhelmingly white for first time in a very, very, actually probably ever. I think we could probably say this is the least white if they're all regularly traveling in the TARDIS the least white TARDIS team we will have ever had uh we will have had a really great number of women who are represented on the team including the doctor so you know that the two women companions are not going to get talked over or patronized quite as much and it's fantastic I love TARDIS teams I think they're great they're some of my favorite times in Doctor
0: Who I am a little more skeptical I'm skeptical on a couple accounts uh We don't know for sure that all four are going to be traveling on the TARDIS together or maybe at the same time. Uh, We could have a Mickey Smith uh, situation or a Jackie Tyler kind of situation where some of these characters may be more than just recurring, but they could be uh, involved with unit. Who knows? You know, to your point about TARDIS teams, I always felt like the TARDIS back in the Peter Davison's time with Adric and Nyssa and Tegan was a little overstuffed, that they didn't always give all of them wonderful things to do. It seemed better in theory than in practice. If this is going to be a more serialized season than we've had in previous years, That may give these characters more arcs and more to do uh, than the old episodic times.
1: I think so. I also don't hold to quite as strict definitions of TARDIS teams as I think some other people do. They don't have to all be traveling full time in the TARDIS for me to consider it a team. Uh, One Ah. of my favorite seasons of Doctor Who is season eight. Uh, You have the unit family really take shape. Uh, You have the Brigadier, the Doctor, Joe, Benton, Mike, like it is a fun group of people that all have their moments to shine. You also have series 10 most recently, uh, where obviously Bill is the central companion, but Nardole is along for some trips. And then at the end, you have Missy along for some trips. So it's almost a four person team towards the end of that season, And so they each have a moment to really shine, to get a spotlight on their story. Um, And I think that would be fascinating for Jodie Whittaker's first set of companions to come up with her, that maybe only a few of them travel with her at a time and their stories really get a moment to shine Um, that you know, maybe one person is a regular that they all stay with on Earth, and the other two are the ones who travel more, except occasionally, you know, one companion gets onto the TARDIS and travels and therefore becomes a companion. Do not fight me, Chip, the brigadier is a companion. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that this could work really well for me.
0: I agree. So the same press release that announced the cast dropped at like 10:30 p.m. British time, or something like that, on a Sunday night. So uh, there, there has been there has been certain ample ample speculation. I and I uh, quote to credit where credits due. I quote tweeted uh, the aforementioned dead Stephen Chapansky uh, that uh, this sounds like the tabloids were about to pick this up so they just dropped this news on a sunday night when nobody's paying attention just to beat the tabloids i guess same press release confirmed that we are going to get 10 episodes this season there's going to be a 60 minute feature length debut I'm using air quotes around the word feature. You just can't see me because it's a podcast. And then the remaining nine episodes, 50 minutes for the rest. So not much longer than what we've been getting so far. And I'm sorry, 60 minutes is not a feature. That's, 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 a, that's 10 minutes longer. Okay, then. I'm being very literal and pronouncing tonight, aren't I? You
1: are. You are caring more about these tiny little definitions and drawing lines than I've ever seen you before.
0: God, I've I've gone native, haven't I?
1: (laughs) I think you have.
0: So, but anyway, the episode structure.
1: And also, just a tiny little freebie that I'm going to throw out there because it made me smile today. Uh, There's a scene floating around YouTube and Twitter from Hotel, um, because it had Paul McGann and Peter Capaldi facing off against each other, really hilariously competing over who was going to marry the girl that they loved. In the background is Bradley Walsh, hilariously failing to make a Vodka Collins. So you should find that clip because it's just great seeing all three of these British greats in a really hilariously funny scene together. And now they've all been on Doctor Who together, too.
0: Link will be in the show notes. Uh, there is a little bit more news. Uh, Pink News gave Doctor Who an Ally Award on Friday. Pink News is a UK publication. The Ally Award was for, quote, long standing LGBT inclusiveness. I will note that uh, in an interview in that column, former executive producer Brian Minchin added the plus, LGBT plus, so that is a little more inclusive. Doctor Who isn't perfect in how it represents anybody. No show is. But Doctor Who has done very, very good things for the queer community over the years. The modern series began thanks to Russell T. Davis. And we had John Barrowman. We have had uh, the characters of Vastra and Jenny, which was, you know...
1: Eh? 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 He takes
0: a... <laughs> Yay and Side simultaneously. But of course, uh, this most recent season uh, with Pearl Mackey just doing such a phenomenal job. So it's a well-deserved award.
1: It is. And it was just delightful seeing Pearl Mackey accept the award at the event. She absolutely deserves it. Uh, Bill was just a truly beautiful character, and I'm so glad that we got her.
0: Okay. I am going to rest the mic away from you for just a second, uh, Alyssa, and talk about you for a second. Because if you follow us on social media, you saw Alyssa tweet a very moving essay that Alyssa wrote at her blog at com. It is absolutely powerful about loss and escapism in Doctor Who and just, you know, what would you do with a box that travels anywhere in time and space? I am, of course, hideously and obviously biased on the subject, but it is a wonderful, wonderful piece. People have loved it. People have appreciated it. And um, if you haven't read it yet, that link is also in the show notes. You done good, Alyssa.
1: Thanks. And thank you to everyone who has read it and sent along their kind thoughts about it. It uh, really helped make a difficult weekend for me easier. So thank you, everybody.
0: And with that, we'll find out what's been going on on the Incomparable Network this week. And then the end of time and A Christmas Carol and Reality Bomb's own Graham Burke. We just can't get rid of the guy.
1: This week on The Incomparable Network.
0: On The Mothership, The Incomparable Book Club convenes to talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, and more. It's all about the books of Roald Dahl on The Incomparable.
1: Lots and lots of great television is being tackled on the TV podcast this week. From Over the Garden Wall to The Prisoner to Arrow.
0: And there's a robot that looks suspiciously like Chameleon on Star Trek Voyager's episode Prototype, covered on Random Trek.
1: All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. And we're back to continue our Christmas master plan. Here with us today is Graham Burke from Reality Bomb. Thank you so much for joining us for this Christmas cheery episode.
0: Always a pleasure to be here. Graham and I discussed... The End of Time on Reality Bomb, back when I was homeless, when I had no podcast, and therefore qualified to be in the gallery of the underrated, between that and my own podcast and being made fun of repeatedly on Radio Free Scarrow, I think my opinions of The End of Time are well-known.
1: You have made a name for yourself as one of the few stalwart defenders of the end of
0: time. Hey, 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 there are, there are more of us out there. Allow me to step up. Hold my beard, down, please.
1: <laughs> They're about to start their secret handshake. Everyone hold it together. <laughs> so, guys, let's hear it. This is a, a much maligned episode. Tell me why you guys love this episode so much.
2: Well, there are two truths which we hold to be self-evident. One, the end of time, parts one and two is a hot mess. <laughs> two, the end of time, parts one and two features some of the most beautiful drama ever within Muscle T. Davies Aegis, and indeed Doctor Who. So between those two polls, yes, there's all sorts of things. Uh, you can there's all sorts of things at play. Um, but I think it's a story that encompasses the bat guano crazy idea of everyone on earth becoming the master and (laughs) the very beautiful and haunting final scene for the 10th Doctor. And
0: it's all in the same story. So what's not the love? You know, I've never claimed that the end of time is perfect Doctor Who. I mean, we've got journeys in for that. Uh, But... (laughs) This is this 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 is me doing my own bit of trolling here, Uh, but you're uh,
1: answering our Twitter mentions.
0: (laughs) Uh, But the things the things that I love about the end of time, I love very much and they cover the flaws of it. Uh, One of the flaws being that it's not actually well suited for being a Christmas special. There is very little Christmassy about it at all. It's uh, it's it is this cataclysmic event in the doctor's life that just happens to air when the BBC determined that it should. That pretty much
2: is true. It, it is it is the least Christmassy of, the, of all of all the Christmas specials. In fact, it's really a New Year's special that just happened to have aired the week before the first part. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It is the second regeneration at Christmas episode, um, which can dampen that Christmas cheer. You know, it's been said that uh, for Peter Capaldi's upcoming regeneration, uh, that the actual event that killed him was done in uh, the series 10 finale episode rather than in the Christmas special, because it was just going to be too depressing to have a doctor killed over Christmas again, that they wanted to focus on on the regeneration. Does that bring the episode down for you, for the Christmas spirit that maybe we're craving at that moment?
2: I don't know. I think uh, if you look at British culture in general, uh, I mean, they're not looking for uplift on Christmas Day. I mean, they air the biggest episodes of Coronation Street and EastEnders. And usually they are the ones that are always, in EastEnders at least, it always begins in, it's going to be the best Christmas ever in Albert Square. And spoiler, it's never is. So (laughs) (laughs) there's usually something really drastic and miserable happening and stuff like that. So I don't necessarily think that Britons are looking for uplift. I think they are looking for drama. And I think uh, a story featuring the Doctor dying has its own sort of inbuilt drama to it. And the thing about The Death of Time is the Doctor's death in, in many respects is very perfunctory. In fact, you could actually legitimately have a debate about what killed him? The fall from a great height, or the <laughs> frying himself to death for for will, for or any number of other ridiculous things that happens to him like a cartoon character in in about a twenty minute space. But that's irrelevant because honestly, it's the portent of doom that carries carries it way all the way through. Um, it, that wonderful scene in the cafe, which is for me to a certain extent. Trumps all the hot mess of the story because it it at the, at the, it's hard. It's a drama about a cheery subject of of death and dying. About accepting that eventually one day you're going to die. And and even in a time lord sort of sense, where some guy shamble, other guy shambles on with a bow tie. It doesn't matter. It, it it's it's still it's still a form of death. And I and I, and I love that about it. Um, I, I think I think it's very ballsy and daring to kind of do that on
0: a on Christmas Day and New Year's <laughs> mm-hmm. Day. I have a feeling, though, Alyssa, that you're going to lean into the hot mess aspects of this story.
1: Well, so here's where I kind of get tripped up by the episodes, is that it sort of veers wildly between a couple of different emotional tones. You know, you have some of the best dramatic moments of the entire series. And then you also have a lot of really weird gags about, you know, uh, the doctor's about to get Felt up by an elderly woman in a bus that's helped Will find him, and uh, you know you're gonna have scenes with the master, kind of like weirdly eating food in a very disturbing manner and it just it the tone for me swings too wildly between all those different things that are happening and I'm also very much of two minds about the master's role in this episode because this is really like the the height of the RTD interpretation of the master you know you you finally see a conclusion to the drumbeats in his head plot and you see some of his most ridiculous behaviors ever. Like this is the Sim Master electrocuting people, turning briefly into skeleton, having quasi superpowers of being able to jump everywhere. And it's kind of weird and disturbing, you know, his complete obsession with food and the way that he's eating it over multiple episodes. And and we haven't even gotten into, you know, the frequently tying each other up and having a leash on him for, most of the first part, um, which is just a little interesting. But you also see this incredible depth of the relationship um, between the Sim Master and the David Tennant Doctor, like moments where they're on screen together, talking and debating their worldviews, their childhoods, their legacies, and how they want to move forward with being the last of their kind. Like, it's great, great stuff. Like, I just want to take those moments out of that episode and just run with them because it's it's absolutely the highlight of both part one and part two that we really see an exploration of the whole lifetime of conflict that has been built up between these two characters and that's that's a bit that i really like about it but oh if i never have to see the sim master flying through the air with electricity out of his hands ever again it'll be too soon
2: i don't deny much of this. I think the tone meeting was, you know, well, let's just see what, throw up everything up against the wall and stick. And they said, you know what? We could throw everything against the wall or we could put it in a super powered air cannon. How about that? And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, kind of Mythbusters, you know, exercised it. It is that kind of a story. I, for me, the drama comes out in front of it. I also, I also kind of take it with the sort of, I guess the contextual kind of view that, any finale in Doctor Who and under either proprietor, frankly, has a certain degree of okay, let's throw in everything and see what see what see what works. Um and and Davies did this increasingly so over his tenure, uh including Journey's End. And and, <laughs> and, and shot across the bow to Chip. But the <laughs> but the point but the point is is that I think in the end, what matters is the drama and the tone. And was it a story that sort of befit not only the end of the, that Doctor's era, but a whole a whole era that brought back Doctor Who? And it, you know, it, 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 it tries to kind of wrap things up so that Stephen Moffat can do what he wants uh, in future. So you wrap up the Time Lords, you wrap up the whole Gallifrey thing, you wrap up. Uh, you wrap up the relationship with the master. So you wrap up even the, you even, you even wrap up, you try to at least pretty up with a bow. What happened with Donna? Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of, let's just try and touch on all these things and let's see if it works. And, and, does it always work? No, hell no. Um, but when it does work, oh my god! I mean, there's all these tiny, beautiful scenes throughout it. There's a scene with with Wolf and the Doctor overlooking the planet, and he's talking yes. about be, he's talking about you know being in Palestine in 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 '47, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous scene. And I just I, I it, and the thing is is that it's filled with all sorts of scenes like that. And 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 the other thing is is that it has Bernard Cribbins in it. Being amazing, mm-hmm. and and ultimately, that's where the center of gravity of that story falls. It's with it's with all the wonderful scenes with Bernard Cribbins. So
0: yeah, yeah, and for me, they all of those things help me put the things that do not work about this two parter in the rearview mirror. Uh, when I originally reviewed it way back in the day, this was the first time that uh, I'd ever come when part one left me just sort of frozen it was the first time I was like I cannot evaluate this episode until I see part two part one was the hot messiest of the hot mess mm-hmm. we 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 yeah. didn't know where it was going to, where it was going to wind up I think it fails as a Christmas episode entirely this should have been the tail end of a regular season
1: yeah it's also sort of odd for me in the way it falls after this David Tennant specials um, that you have these sort of like one-off looks into his life while he's roaming around without a companion. Um, And this seems to really naturally sort of slot in at the end of uh, Series 4 that it's really, you know, wrapping things up. Like if we could get Series 4, Waters of Mars, and then this, that to me feels more like the natural arc and progression of where the 10th doctor is going um and it it fits in more with a let's really wrap up everything with the davies era um you know it's it's closing out a ton of things all of the companions that he brought in the reintroduction of sarah jane sarah jane adventures it it feels more like a closing statement on that entire era as a whole Um, with all of its highs and lows together of this is Davies when it can be just a little bit too much for me. And it's also him at sheer perfection of bringing out those moments that really define the characters Uh, right up to the sort of controversial regeneration scene uh, with David Tennant saying, I don't want to go.
0: Right. Which for me is absolutely beautiful. And for, Other people, people who were tired of David Tennant or tired of Russell T. Davis is just the last insult when I think it's the most honest. It's the most honest look at regeneration that we've ever had. And I do think that there are some strong parallels to that with what we're about to get with Peter Capaldi, at least uh, towards the end of uh, the season finale for series 10
2: it's honest and it's and it's the most kind of human
0: uh look at a regeneration story and
2: i think for me it's appropriate for a doctor who is a very kind of human doctor he he, he ha, uh, you know he's 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 very much a time lord but he's also he has a lot of human failings he has a lot of human frailties he, and and he has the most profound human frailty of all is that you know he doesn't want to go he ultimately you know ha, he ultimately has to face his end with Uh, alone and, and as we all will one day. And, and I, I think that's, I think that's, I think it was such a profound kind of ending. And and it, it, it is the one regeneration scene that is guaranteed to have me in tears within about 15 seconds. It is, it is, it is that hauntingly beautiful. And, and I always, and I, yeah, I get that it's unheroic, but, but, Mm -hmm. but, but I also think that I think that what Davies has done is he's he's taken the idea of regeneration and turned it on his head and said, well, yes, it is a death. And why is it that we always have to have these sort of death scenes with such real kind of, you know, uh, faux heroism to do Why can't we just have one where it's just a simple acknowledgement that. This is the end and I, I really liked it for that. I, I, you know and and the next time you know you, and that's a great thing about Doctor who it, you know it, it's like the New England weather and you just wait 10 minutes you get something different you know ah. three <laughs> years later three, three years later you get the doctor sort of you know adjusting taking off his bow tie and, and saying that you know he's the best that he loved the time when the doctor was him and and bam, you know you're back to you're back to a more heroic kind of statement. I yeah. love uh, you know for this one, it was perfect for that doctor.
0: And yeah. I, I will aver to my dying day that when the doctor saw his potentially evil future incarnation, the Valyard, from that moment on, every doctor should be worried about regenerating. I'm just saying.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh <laughs> I like dear. that about
0: you, Chip. You're all big picture,
2: um.
1: <laughs> big picture and trolling. <laughs> So we're gonna move over now into the next Christmas special, which is our first Christmas special with Matt Smith, and it is, in my opinion, kind of one of the most delightful Christmas specials, and that's a Christmas Carol. Uh, but it is certainly more Christmassy
0: with, than in its predecessor.
1: That is true. It's more
0: Christmasy uh, than any Christmas special, I
2: think. Um, honestly, it's 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 it really leans into the skit.
1: It does. And you seemed a little bit more cool on it at the beginning before we started recording, Graham.
2: Yes, I believe I called it a soulless confection. Yes, um, you did. <laughs> and then the
0: screaming began. The, the The remainder of this segment, my audio track is just going to be the sound of me crunching on popcorn. I'm just saying.
1: So genuinely, Graham. What, why is this a soulless confection to you? do you do you have a problem with your soul? Is there a deficit with your soul? What can I do to help?
2: <laughs> I think it's a combination of things. I, I think uh, I, I have to say that my opinion on a Christmas Carol has vastly improved with rewatches but my first my first watch I was just horrified.
0: Wait because wait, it's improved to the level of soulless
2: confection. Grand.
1: <laughs> I don't even want to know what you described it as
2: first. <laughs> well, I, I mean I mean I think Soulless Confection is probably more my starting point. Now it's just a little bit above a Soulless Confection. I think that I think frankly you can't have a, a, a Christmas special with a song as good as that and it and to be called a Soulless Confection. So even I will admit that because I think the song is the most beautiful song and it's the, and it's the best song of out of all the Murray gold songs that we got at Christmas. And I, it's a tradition I wish we'd come back to. And it was, it's beautiful. So there's that. Mm -hmm. What bothers me about it is, is that it's everything that bothered me about the Moffat era up until that point, kind of writ large. It's about the mechanics of the time travel and the gimmicks more than about the legitimate kind of human drama. And I think to a certain extent I've where I've kind of pulled back in my opinion is, is that I've seen the human drama. And I, I I kind of there there are some nice touches with, with Michael Gambon's character. But I really I, I mean, I have the same problem with it that I fundamentally had with the short story that Stephen Moffat uh did back in the '90s that he used for this, which is that you can you basically make a nonsense out of every Doctor Who story if all you can do is go back in time and go change the attitude of the person. Why doesn't the Doctor just go back in time and change Van Staten in Dalek? So in Dalek, so he's a nicer person. Like it, it's just it makes a, it, it's a fundamental nonsense out of the Doctor Who concept. But I but beyond that, I just feel like it's more obsessed with that kind of gimmick of of trying to change back time and change back time so that you can get this thing. And in the end, you know, in the end, I find even the ending is a bit meaningless to me that it's the whole climax with, with him meeting his, meeting his, his younger self. It, it didn't, it didn't remote, the emotions didn't resonate, but I also think it's, it's very it's very lovely, wonderful to look at. It's very, it's got, it, it has all the trappings, right? It just doesn't feel like, it feels like it's more obsessed with the time travel than it is with, with the drama. Alyssa, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Do so you, I you, you need some time just to get draw off the floor? I mean, just... <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I'm going to come out of the gate swinging and say that I f- respect your opinion, but I fundamentally disagree with everything that you just said. <laughs> I
2: fundamentally respect that. I'm the minority opinion on this story, believe me.
1: <laughs> so where I'm coming from with this is that my family and I, are we're all kind of obsessed with this story, A Christmas Carol. Um, I have read the original Charles Dickens story. Um, my family watches a version of this every year. Um, we watch A Muppet Christmas Carol literally every year. I have... Basically, every line of that movie memorized and can spout it at demand. So, I was really excited to see a Doctor Who take on A Christmas Carol. And I think that, yes, it is a little bit classic Moffat in that it is uh, obsessed with the mechanics of time travel, but I felt this was the story in which it worked because A Christmas Carol as a story, even the original story is sort of fundamentally about that, about taking somebody and showing them their past, their present and their future in a way that can be life altering and that it is playing with that concept, but doing it in a way that I felt was more meaningful than a lot of Moffat specials in playing around with that. And I felt that it was one of the better adaptations of A Christmas Carol because of the way that it approached the human drama in that story, particularly the way it centered in on Kazran's love interest, Abigail, or Scrooge's love interest in any other Christmas Carol adaptation, in that it was really about how you can fundamentally change a person by examining their past and what led them to become the person that they are today. You know, with a lot of Christmas Carol adaptations, it's just this person is selfish and rude and obsessed with money and metrics without any sense of what that brings him in life. And Christmas Carol really digs into the character and goes, what makes somebody that self-obsessed? What makes somebody that removed and heartless towards the rest of his fellow mankind? And, Abigail has a really interesting role to play in this story. Um, She's actually a lot more active than other adaptations of the story. Uh, Scrooge's love interest is actually not even given a name in the original version. She's just the girl. And a lot of other versions have her exist and lecture Scrooge and then walk off stage. And in this one, she plays a role and she's also, there's a reminder of you can change yourself as a person, but you can't undo the legacy of harm that you've left behind, which I thought was a really fascinating thing for any adaptation of Christmas Carol to do, especially Doctor Who, which, you know, with Moffat, he has sometimes a, a problem of wanting to completely rewrite things for a happy ending. And they don't get a happy ending here. They get a very bittersweet ending of Kazran eventually changes his mind, stops trying to remove himself from considering his impact on other people, but he has lost too much time, especially with Abigail, and he has lost any opportunity to have the relationship that he really wanted with her. And he has to live with the legacy that he's kind of destroyed both of their lives, even if he has repented and changed himself at the end. And yet it's still done with a very Christmassy spirit and heart to it, that there is delight and joy and wonder in everything that can be discovered. And There can be some happiness even dealing with the legacy of the awful things that he has done. So I think the drama is very front and center in that. And there's just that little Moffity touch of let's really get obsessed with the time, the mechanics of time travel in this story. But it doesn't yet annoy me like it does with future stories of his. Um, And I still go back to it every Christmas to watch it.
2: But I guess- I I know, Chip, you want to jump in, but I have to argue the the Christmas story adaptation point because (laughs) my literary nerdness is is rising. I guess for me, my issue is that a Christmas Carol in the original form and its adaptations is about self-examination. It's about it's about the spirits come and Scrooge is forced to examine himself. And but there is no self-examination for Kazran. His 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 personal history has just changed. He, he, the only time we actually get the 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 Christmas present ghost sequence is in the original is about Scrooge confronting you know the the consequences of his actions in real time as he sees it happen with Cratchit's family and such there is no point of self-reflection there in in in, in this he's he's actually unmoved by the singing of people who are about to die but I do agree with you, Alyssa, about the ending. Mm-hmm. I do agree. I, I do like that kind of closer to the dawn kind of, but no better kind of underlying message. But yeah, I, I, find, I, find it, I find it frustrating and problematic even as a Christmas Carol adaptation. But anyways, well, I'll shut up and let Chip talk. Well,
0: <laughs> it is nowhere near as much of a, quote, hot mess, close quote, as The End of Time. But there are three different things going on in this episode that almost feel like they're in tension with each other. One is Moffat is being absolutely intent on making this the Christmasiest episode possible, especially after the last couple of uh, Davis episodes. You know, he he wants to make this a full-on Christmas episode. So we've got the Christmas Carol riff just heavily throughout this episode. The second thing that's going on is the surrealism of the swimming in fog fish and the shark playing the role of Santa's reindeer and things like that, which is just mad, bonkers, weird. And then the rewriting of the person, the rewriting of Kazrin, who that makes me deeply uncomfortable. The same way that the doctor removes Donna's agency, the doctor is rewriting you know, Ka- Kazrin's wrong people can be rewritten the doctor is doing that right there and there's the same kind of hand waving about Kazrin, uh being able to remember who he was and having new memories suddenly come around and he suddenly becomes a new man and he can't operate the machine anymore the same sort of thing that's used to help uh, explain how Rory can remember 2,000 years of uh, being a centurion and not go crazy I remember it when it's useful all of these things sort of working against each other uh, make A Christmas Carol uh, fun to watch. I certainly don't hate it, and I certainly don't think it's a soulless confection, <laughs> unlike uh, unlike my esteemed co-panelist here. But there's stuff here that if I think too much about it, I either think that Stephen Moffat is reaching too far or I just don't like it.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting episode, the way people interpret it, you know, because everyone brings such different things to the story, particularly their impressions of Moffat and what he's trying to do with this story, that it's always fascinating to hear how other people interpret it. I think it's it's interesting though, that the focus on Kazran and his agency because he is a very much deprived of agency. And to me it felt like there was an a bit of a subtle addressing of that of you did this terrible thing to me of you did not like the way I was so you rewrote me and you still destroyed my life and made me go through this awful, awful experience. But he still fundamentally could not be changed until he sort of examined Himself, I mean, I, I slightly disagree. I I, I understand, Graham, it's, it's not the focus like it is with other Christmas Carol adaptations. But there is a moment of recognition of he is becoming the one person in his life that he did not want to be his father. And that he is... When he comes to know,
0: that point of nearly slapping himself, you know, that yes. is spot on.
1: Yes. I, I, for me, that's the moment where, I, where it was... Uh, he, you know he cannot be saved until he recognizes what he has become um, whether it's what the doctor made him to be or what he was going to be all along
0: and Abigail is an, Abigail is literally a woman in a refrigerator
1: Oh, she's literally a woman in refrigerator. Like this is my problematic fave episode. I I 100% own that it is a uh, I don't know if it's the hottest of hot messes, but it's got a little bit of a hot mess thing going through it. Um, But it she still has a much more active role to play in this than in a lot of other adaptations, uh, which I enjoy.
2: It's a very. I mean, I. I think in it, it's in the plus column. It's a very tightly constructed story, and I think it's. Mm-hmm. I think it's. I think it's a gorgeously directed story, and I think it's well directed in all the ways that the end of time isn't. Um. It. it it's really thought of. How the look and feel of the whole thing should go throughout the thing, and to a certain extent, I, I can watch it quite happily and not and and do not become Outrage fan because it just it looks great and it's really it's fun. So pretty, you know. They, it's got, they blind, really it's got leaned into sharks. They
0: really leaned into learning how to grade. I mean, um, I know none of the none of the Christmas specials we've seen before this have that sort of intentional color palette or palette.
2: Yes, I mean they shot. They shot End of Time in HD, but they literally just got the cameras. I think I think <laughs> I think they've had a year to actually figure out how to use an HD camera to its full extent, and uh, and I think it's uh, I think I think it's much more gorgeous for that. And. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, there are things I really love about the story. Like I said, I love the song. I think, I think Amy and Rory are actually really well used in it. I think, I think, I think the gag about them being on, being on a honeymoon cruise is very, ador- is very adorable. It's, it, it, you know, there's lots of things about
0: it that I actually really enjoyed. But what drugs was Stephen Moffat on when he said, "You know what this Christmas story needs? It's a space shark."
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I want him to share. <laughs> But yeah, and, and that's the one thing that you know. Everyone, you know, I I would go in and say, well, yes, it makes a nonsense out of, the, out of Doctor Who, and and what about the and it's just about time travel mechanics. This and everyone would go to me, but it's got flying sharks. It's awesome, and, and I'm <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I think that in the end, I think I think that's it's the ultimate kind of crowd pleasing thing. I I think it's I think it's uh, Stephen Moffat writing to his sons. It's it's you know, what what's the sort of cool thing they've always wanted to see? Oh, flying sharks. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: of course, uh, young Kazrin being a video blogger, just like Stephen Moffat's son. I don't think that that's a coincidence.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a big not.
1: I think this has been the uh, week of our problematic fave Christmas episodes of episodes we love dearly, even when they can be a hot mess. Oh, Lord, yes.
0: Alyssa, I think we learned a lot tonight about Christmas episodes of Doctor Who.
1: Specifically, how much we can tolerate of each other's problematic faves.
0: I had not expected to hear the word soulless confection in casual conversation. I, I was surprised, and you did not leap out of your monitor to throttle him, at least as far as I can tell. Not yet. Graham, when I say run, run. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com if you haven't found us there already. Uh, we tweet at this Week. I tweet at numeral two-minute time, Lord. That's my old podcast. And Alyssa tweets and tumbles at Hoovian Feminism. Graham tweets at Graham Burke, G-R-A-E-M-E, Burke. And also at Reality Bomb PC. Quite a clever podcast. And we are on Facebook as well.
1: Jason Snell runs the network and graciously invited us. You can support us all by becoming a member at theincomparable.com slash members. But of course, we'd really appreciate it if you supported This Week in Time Travel.
0: Check the twit box. Check the twit box.
1: Don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. Our theme music is by Christopher Breen, and our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lohr. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this October 24th edition of This Week in Time Travel.
0: Cheers.